Before we begin, I'm going to just pray and ask for God's help. Oh, Father God, we're so grateful that you're here in a very special way, and we're very grateful that you've given us a desire to be here and to hear from your word and to experience you. And we're, we're even more grateful that you have provided so much grace and honor and favor for us, so much that we don't deserve. And most importantly, we were so grateful for what you've given us in your Son. I ask that your Holy Spirit would now soften our hearts and allow each and every one of us to hear exactly what you would want us to hear today, and that you would strengthen me as I attempt to communicate that word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Or so the old saying goes. That's exactly what one Friedrich Guggenberger was thinking as he sat captive in Camp Papago Park, a military prison camp located right here in Phoenix back during World War II. You see, you see Friedrich was a German U-boat officer, a submariner, who'd been captured by Allied forces and taken as a prisoner of war along with several others of his shipmates. But they didn't sit idly by at Camp Papago. They had a strong desire. Their desire was to get home. And this desire to get home drove them to look for a way of escape. You see, Friedrich had obtained a map of Arizona that showed a clear path to Mexico via a meandering chain of rivers. If they could somehow escape the prison camp and assemble a flotilla of rafts, a clear path to freedom lay ahead. So, after digging nearly 200 feet underground, undetected, over a period of three months, Friedrich and 24 of his German sailor friends managed to crawl out of Camp Papago to their freedom. Or so they thought. For when Friedrich, what Friedrich had not counted on was that that bright blue Rio Salada depicted on his map was no more than a dry bed of rocks with little water in it, just as it is today. Friedrich's dream of rafting home to freedom was a wash, quite literally. He and his fellow sailors would have to walk hundreds of miles to Mexico through a desert instead. Needless to say, they never got there. For over the next five weeks, all 25 escapees were apprehended and returned to Camp Papago. Not one of them made it home until the end of the war. But Friedrich's determination to get home resonates with each, each of us. For we too have similar misgivings about our place in this world. We too somehow know that this can't be all there is. 
we belong somewhere else. So we belong with someone much better in the service of someone much greater, and we so long to discover it. And as we shall see, this is the very heartbeat of the psalm we shall examine today. A psalm composed 3,000 years ago, yet with a message that remains relevant for us today. For as we shall see, we all desire to get home where we belong. But it takes trust in the life and work of another to actually make it happen. So join with me as we peruse through Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she can lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. That's a musical interlude, by the way. It gives me a time to take a drink. Verse 2, stanza 2. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Verse 3, the last four verses. Behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. As we can see, as I read it, this Psalm is conveniently divided into three stanzas, four verses apart, separated by those selahs. And another interesting thing about this psalm is there's actually three little beatitudes in it, blessed statements. Remember the beatitudes that are in the New Testament? The blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, there's three of them here in Psalm 84, and they're going to serve conveniently as our points as we go through this psalm. If you're curious, the three blessed statements are in verses 4, 5, and 12. The first one will be our first point. I'll summarize it as this. 
longing for his house. Verse 1, again. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. These are the cries of a homesick man, one who so wants to be somewhere else, but not just anywhere else. This man longs to be back in the courts of the Lord. You see, it's pretty clear that the author of this psalm is not where he should be. He's one of the appointed worship leaders of Jerusalem. He's one of the famous sons of Korah. He's led worship in the courts of God's tabernacles, and he misses it. He so wants to be back there. His soul longs to be there. In fact, his body is even fainting. He's weak at the knees from longing to be home. But it's not like he sees himself as deserving to be there. Just look at verse 3. The psalmist makes reference to sparrows and swallows, lowly, unimpressive creatures by anyone's measure. He states that even these creatures find a home and a nest for themselves in the house of God. Even these insignificant ones are welcomed and privileged to be there. So like the sparrow and the swallow, the psalmist does not see himself as worthy to be in God's presence. He's just grateful to have the opportunity. His desire to be there is in no way about himself. It's all about the one who dwells there. For he has summed it up in verse 4, our first blessed statement. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. To him, there is simply no better place to be. In fact, he states that very thing later in this psalm, down in verse 10. You can take a quick look down there. In this verse, he actually is trying to come up with a reason for why he said all that stuff in verses 1 through 4. He puts a little 4. There's a reason here. He's contemplating the reason. The reason is, the reason he longs and faints for God's house is because a day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It's better. That's the reason. It's better. He knows this to be true because he's experienced a taste of it. He's led worship at the tabernacle. And he knows from personal experience that one day spent in God's presence is better than thousands elsewhere, including where he finds himself at present. In fact, it would be better for him to just be standing at the entryway into God's house as a doorkeeper and do the most menial of tasks, holding the door open for all the other ones coming in. He'd much rather be doing that than where he is right now. For compared to God's dwelling place, every other place is just tents of wickedness. They're corrupt. There's no place like his place. That's why he longs to get back to God's house. It's the safest place. 
It's the best place. It's the dearest place on earth. Now, by extension, we too can relate to the psalmist's desire. For though we don't have tabernacles today, we do have a place where God dwells in a special way. It's called the local church. For it is in this context, this context of the local church, that God's presence is most evident. But look what the New Testament writers say. Well, look what Paul says in his letter to Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 22. In him, that's Christ, you, the church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, you are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It sounds very similar to the language of Psalm 84. Or God's dwelling place today is our local churches. He's chosen to dwell on his people in a unique way, especially when they gather to worship him like we're doing this morning. It's no wonder then that we, his people, long to gather for a similar purpose. For like the psalmist, we too know that better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Or do we? Let's take inventory of what draws us to our local church, shall we? Why are we so committed to come to church? Just think about it. Is it because of the people? Because of the programs? The youth ministry? The children's ministry? Is it because of the good preaching or the worship? Maybe. Or is it because we know that the Lord is here in a special way? Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things I just mentioned. Those are good reasons to come. But if our number one desire isn't to be with the Lord, then what is it? I submit that for most of us, encountering God is actually the real reason we come, even though we may not realize it. Because when you stop and think, of, think about it, the presence of the Lord is the one constant that is always here to draw us. And people will disappoint us. The programs may be more of a nuisance than a help at times. The preaching may not be very good. The worship may fall flat. But despite all that, one constant, God, God is here. And that's why we come. I'd say this is even true for those of you who claim not to be Christians. And yet, you keep coming. Why do you keep coming? It's Because something's drawing you. More specifically, someone is drawing you. You keep coming back to God's house because there is something attractive about this place. And according to Psalm 84, that attractive one is none other than the Lord of hosts. But there's more to Psalm 84 than just longing for his house. This longing motivates our psalmist to get up and start walking towards that house. Which brings us to our second point, the point of the second stanza, verses 5 through 8. Walking in his strength. And it begins with our second blessed statement. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. 
in whose heart are the highways to Zion. God not only has given the psalmist a desire to go home, he's given him a roadmap to get there and the strength to do so. Think about that phrase, whose strength is in you. The strength belongs to the psalmist, but where does he find it? Where does it come from? It comes from the Lord and nowhere else. The writer of Psalm 84 knows that whatever strength he may have comes from God and God alone. And God hasn't just given him strength, he's given him direction. God has placed in his heart the highways to Zion. The Lord of hosts has not just given our psalmist a desire to be with him, he's provided the way and the means to make it happen. Quite the contrast with our friend Friedrich that we talked about earlier. He had the desire to get out. He got out. But something was missing when he got out. He even had a map. The map wasn't very good, but he had a map. What was missing? God wasn't there to help him get, to, get home. And another thing was missing. As he was traversing through the Valley of the Sun... There weren't no water. He was missing water. He needed that water and it wasn't there. Not so for our psalmist. <laughs> Look what he says in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. Now the valley of Baca, to the best of our knowledge, is a dry Desolate, forsaken desert. Not much different from the Valley of the Sun back in the 40s. It's an extremely inhospitable place with very little water. Yet, water shows up. And not only that, one other thing about this Valley of Baca journey for our psalmist is that he's not alone. He's going through this valley of Baca, this deserted, terrible valley, but he's not alone. Look, look at the plural pronouns that show up in verses 5 through 7. They're all plural. Verse 5, blessed are those in whose heart are the highways. Verse 6, they, plural, go through the valley of Baca, and they make it a place of springs. And verse 7, they, plural, go from strength to strength, and each one of presumably many appears in Zion. The psalmist is not alone. The Lord has graciously joined him to others who are on the same journey. For more importantly, God himself is with him. It's not just others. God is there. Did you see that in the language? Because after all, it's God's strength that enables them to walk. My strength is in you. It's God's goodness that brings rain upon them in a place where it shouldn't happen. You notice it says early rain. Early rain. Rain that was even unexpected. Rain that wasn't planned. It came early. We're out in the desert and it's raining on us. God brought early rain. And it's God's provision of springs of water he enables them to find and dig up and find and find even more water, pools of water. 
God's doing all that. God's with them. This God who dwells in the tabernacle is actually dwelling with them right there in the valley of Baca. And through it all, each one of them appears before God in Zion. Each one finds his way home. The Lord himself guarantees it. But why? Why would the Lord do this? Why would God go out of his way to enable people to go from strength to strength through a harsh desert landscape? Curiously, the psalmist doesn't give an answer in those first eight verses, but that's what the final stanza is for. Because he does start to broach that idea in his final four verses. He starts looking for reasons and possible explanations for God's glorious, gracious behavior to him and his traveling companions. Just notice verses 10 and 11. They have a word in front of them that's different from the rest. It has the word for, a little word, for. That word means because. It's a cause. He's giving a reason. Verses 10 and 11 provide reasons for what he said earlier. Now, I've already mentioned it, but verse 10, remember, provides the reason for why the psalmist longs for God's house. That reason is simply because it's better, and he wants to be there. But verse 11 provides the reason for how the psalmist and his traveling companions can successfully traverse the valley of Baca in verses 5 through 9. It gives a reason. Basically, that reason is the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Well, that's symbolism. What does that mean? The Lord God is a sun and a shield. Well, if you think about it, the sun provides heat, light, and nutrients. So in the same way as the sun provides that to us, so the Lord God gives life, guidance, and the strength to walk through life. Thus, the Lord God is like a sun. He's a provider. And then there's another metaphor. The Lord God is a shield. Now, what is a shield used for? A shield provides protection from dangers, toils, and snares. So does the Lord God as we walk along life's dangerous paths. Thus, the Lord God is a shield. Therefore, the Lord God is a sun and a shield, a provider and a protector. But that's not all. Verse 11 has got a lot more in it than that. Look what the next phrase says. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Now these two words, when they get moved into the New Testament, they typically get translated differently. They get typically translated as grace, favor is grace, and honor is typically translated as glory. So in other words, God gives us something we absolutely do not deserve. Grace, favor. And he invites us to share in something we do not earn. Honor, glory. And that's still not all. There's still more to this verse. The final half. And that, just read this. No good thing does he withhold 
No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. So those who walk uprightly through the valley of Baca walk with him every step of the way. And ultimately, as verse 8 says, they appear before him in Zion for one reason and one reason alone. Because their son and shield, their provider and protector, God, wants them to arrive. So to summarize, verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 states that the reason we desire to be with God is because he's better, and we want him. Verse 11 states that the reason God strengthens us to go to his place is because he wants to. In other words, we want him, and he wants us. But why? Why would God want us? What does he see in us that would make him want us to come to him so ardently? Does our psalmist even give an answer? I believe he does. It's just not in a place that you might expect. You see, in Hebrew poetry, the most important point rarely occurs at the beginning or at the end of a passage. I mean, that's what they teach you in writing school today. Make your most important point up front. And if you don't do it there, make it at the end. Why? Because everybody's not listening to anything you're saying in between. But in Hebrew poetry, the most important point usually occurs in the middle, in a place that we Westerners just plain aren't expecting. So to find it, we have to look for it, because it's not always obvious. And so it is with this psalm. The most significant point of Psalm 84 is not at the beginning or at the end. Rather, it's in the middle. It's hidden away in a rather unassuming, seemingly unimpressive prayer. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. These two verses are different from all the others in this psalm. That's because these are the only two verses where the psalmist is talking directly to God. And he's asking God to do something. Unlike the rest of Psalm 84 that celebrate God's goodness and His greatness, or the psalmist giddiness about God's goodness and His greatness. Verses 8 and 9 are a direct request of God. They make for a very simple, yet as we shall see, very profound prayer. They read as follows. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, Look on the face of your anointed. In these two verses, our psalmist makes two simple requests of God. First, in verse 8, he begs God to just listen to him, just to hear his prayer, nothing else. The very one who knows that he is guaranteed, a guaranteed appointment with God in Zion 
humbly asks for God to hear him out before he gets there and all the whole journey while he's going there. This is the very essence of what prayer is. A humble request for an audience with God, for God's ear as we walk through life, day after day. But verse 8 is just a setup for the request that follows in verse 9. And what an unusual request it is. Instead of doing what I would do, and you would probably do, instead of asking God for more help, instead of asking God for more strength, instead of asking God for assurance, and those are all good things to ask for. I'm not saying don't ask for those in prayer. The psalmist asked for something unexpected. He asked God to look on someone else. Which brings us to our third and final point. Trusting in His Anointed One. Psalm 84.9 reads, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. In this verse, the psalmist is begging God to look upon someone else. Someone he calls our shield. And then in the second half, he calls that same our shield, your anointed. It's Hebrew parallelism at work. Two phrases saying the same thing differently. Our shield, your anointed. You see, the psalmist instinctively knew something about himself in relation to God. He knew that he did not deserve any of these blessings that God was so generously heaping upon him. He knew that God's favor and honor towards him was contingent upon the work of someone else. Someone called our shield, and at the same time, God's anointed. Now back in the psalmist's day, this anointed shield of God would have been identified as a combination of two people. One would have been the king, anointed by God to fight his battles, King David in this particular case. The second would have been the high priest, anointed by God to make sacrifices for sin. Zadok and Abiathar in the case of our psalmist. In either case, the psalmist knew that his standing before God was contingent upon the work of another. It was God's anointed king who defended him from the evil one and all the enemies, and it was God's anointed priests who covered his sin through animal sacrifices. So in verse 9, the psalmist is asking God to look and keep on looking upon the anointed one, not himself. He doesn't want God to look upon himself or any of the people with him because he knows no one with him is worthy. He desperately needs God to keep his gaze fixed on someone else. Someone who would shield him from the consequences of his own sin. <laughs> now the implications of this prayer are astounding. When the psalmist penned the prayer of Psalm 84.9, he spoke much better than he ever could have known. For you see, the word that the, he chose to use there at the end of verse 9 is none other than the word Messiah. 
And he could not have known that one day an anointed Messiah would come, one far superior to the anointed ones of his day. He could not have known that this particular Messiah would experience something unbelievably traumatic. For this future Messiah, also known as Christ in Greek, would for a brief time experience a loss of God's provision and protection. He would not experience, verse 11, he would not experience the favor and honor of God. And for a time, every good thing would be withheld from him even though he had always walked uprightly, ultimately this Messiah's strength would fail him and his God would leave him to die on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the dead, never to die again. And a few weeks later, he was taken up to heaven to perform a new function, a new role, a new job description on behalf of us. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 24, which will be put up on the screen. Just hear what this says. For Christ, the anointed one, has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true ones, like the tabernacle and temple of the psalmist. No, but Christ has entered into heaven itself. For what reason? Here's the reason. He's there now, right now, to appear before the face of God on our behalf. You see, brothers and sisters, our Christ, our anointed one, is standing before the face of God right now. God the Father has fixed his gaze upon him and doesn't plan to take his eyes off of him anytime soon. And where do we fit in this picture? All of us who have trusted him are, as the Apostle Paul says, in him. Christ intercedes before the face of God on our behalf, when God the Father gazes upon His anointed one, He sees us too. Why? Because we're covered by His blood, we're indwelled by His Spirit, and we're joined to His body. Perhaps that's why the psalmist closes out his psalm. The very last verse with another blessed statement, the final one. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. The simplest of all, the easiest to do, just blessed is the one who trusts in you. For that's all it takes to enjoy the blessings of this psalm. Simply trust in God's anointed one. That trust yields strength, favor, honor, and an endless supply of the goodness of the Lord. How about you? Won't you do it today? 
Once you trust in the Lord again, perhaps for the very first time, once you make the prayer of Psalm 84, 9 your own, look on the face of your anointed one, O God. Don't stop looking. For in so doing, <laughs> our ticket to his house and our home is punched, and our eventual arrival is guaranteed. Yes, we all desire to get home where we belong, but it takes trust in the life and the work of his anointed one to actually make it happen. Let's pray. Oh God, we're so grateful that you look on your anointed one or not us. And we're so grateful that you have decided to give us favor, grace, honor, and glory when we don't deserve it. And you've decided to not withhold any good thing from us as we walk with you through the valley of Baca. Lord God, help us. Help us believe this. Help us trust in you and help us walk together on our way to your dwelling place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.